Welcome to our next episode of the Five Moments of Need Performance Matters series. This is Bob Mosier, one of the many co-hosts you'll meet throughout this series. So friends, are you trying to learn more about the Five Moments of Need? Maybe how to design for them, implement for them, measure them and even sell them as an approach to your enterprise. Well, in the Performance Matters series, we will help you better understand the theory and best practices behind this powerful methodology and offer proven ways to put the five moments of need into practice. Bob Mosier here. Welcome back. As was introduced on the beginning to the podcast, one of your co-hosts of the Performance Matters podcast series. Great to have you all here. Uh, This particular series is one of my favorites. It's along our Strategy Matters line, and that's a perfect lead into our amazing person we have uh, with us today, a hero of mine, a a real visionary, in my opinion, pioneer in our industry, always has uh, pushed the envelope, a real disruptor, which are my favorite kind. Uh, But we'd like to welcome Guy Wallace here for our particular podcast. Guy, welcome. Thank you, Bob. I'm glad to be here. So, my friend, let's get right into this. Um, I don't do the intro thing very much or read from kind of (laughs) cue card kind of deal. I I think it's kind of best to, to kind of get us into the conversation by the journey in getting this here. So why don't you give us a bit on what has been your journey in L&D and such has gotten you to this place? A fortunate series of lucky things happened to me. My first job out of college with my radio, TV, and film degree was at a small training and development organization for Wix Lumber up in Saginaw, Michigan. I'd worked mm-hmm. for that for two and a half years uh, in my college town. But the 10-person department that I joined had Gary Rumler's brother-in-law in mm-hmm. it. He was instrumental in bringing in two people who became my department's co-workers, my boss and my one co-worker, and they had worked with Gary Rumler's brother at Blue Cross Blue Shield in Detroit, Michigan. Wow. And so I immediately got indoctrinated into a performance orientation a la now the late Gary Rumler. And on day one, I was shown uh, articles of his and Gilbert's about guidance. Yeah. So the the early name for job aids and performance support and all of that. And this was a a newsletter of theirs from 1970. Wow. So that's been around for a long time. And so I was also given a Bob Mager book to read. I was given the six pack, but they said, read this analyzing performance problems or you really (laughs) ought to want a book. And I went home and read that the first night. And I was so excited about that. I bought four copies, sent them Uh. to best friends from college who mailed me back and said, you know, what the heck is that all about? That's crazy. You know, why'd you send this to me? But I was so enthused about all of this. So I got oriented to uh, Rumler and Gilbert and Mager, and then uh, soon thereafter, the work of Joe Harless. And I, I really kind of got this performance orientation. I joined the local chapter in Detroit, 95 miles away from Saginaw, of NSPI, now ISPI, and I went to the conference the next April in 1980, and I met all these people. And so I was really kind of brought up, if you will, with my radio, TV, film degree, coming in the side door to training and development, and got this performance orientation where we did our analysis using a derivative of a derivative of a Rumler methodology, as I was told back in those days, before I really knew what any of that meant. And I worked for Wix for 18 months, and I uh, my wife got transferred to Chicago, and I joined Motorola, and I got the job offer because I had Gary Rumler's name inside my resume. Wow. And then I got a chance to work with Gary Rumler at Motorola. The reason they hired me is they thought, oh, we're bringing in Gary Rumler. Why don't we check this guy out? And so they hired me. But I got to work with 
Gary Rumler on a, on a couple of dozen projects over the 18 months I was there. I got a chance to work with Neil Rackham of Spin Selling fame mm. while I was there. I met my future business partner, Ray Svensson, who was there. And I left Motorola after 18 months, joined Ray Svensson's small consulting firm, did that for 15 years. Then we broke up the business. And I started another business. And then in 2004, I went solo doing basically the same kinds of things that I had been doing throughout my career, which is uh, centered on performance-based curriculum architecture design using a facilitated group process, bringing together master performers and other subject matter experts and developing what later became known as learning paths, but training and development paths that were performance-oriented. And, you know, I've done 76 of those over my career, Mm -hmm. mostly for Fortune 500 companies, you know, critical job titles and critical business processes. Wow. And I've done a fair amount of instructional development, so building courses and resources, job aids and all of that. But that's kind of brought me to where I am today. So my friend, you know, that's a, a remarkable pedigree. I mean, and incredible names, defendable research. Let's get right to the hard stuff, Guy, <laughs> that I know you and I talk about quite a bit, written about quite a bit. And I, I know it bothers me, I think, to a degree. I think it also bothers you. I, I get all the time that this workflow learning thing, trendy, new, is it a, a brand name for something that's kind of been around a while, i.e. a job eight or two and that kind of stuff. But what, what you've proven to in your in your life and your work, and of course, the the resume you just rattled off, is that this is not new. And and It's supported by remarkable work. It's been proven by remarkable work. It has produced remarkable results. Why are we sitting here in 2020 and what's old is new again? Where where did your path not parallel, in my opinion, the majority of all others, which when I've talked to them or introduced others, they don't give that resume at all. It's staunch Addy stuff and the whole – again, I have to be careful here because I get bashed for – appearing to bash that stuff. But how did we get where we are sitting today? You know, I think that a lot of it has to do with that most of us are accidental trainers, instructional designers and developers and that we don't have a firm grounding in the research. And I don't, I can't cite the research, but I can generally tell you what it suggests we should do and not do. And that's because of the people that were mentors to me and many, many others. Part of my methodology is after I assess the target audience, you know, the persona kind of a thing nowadays, and then take a look at what are the performance requirements, what outputs are produced, how do you measure one, how do you know a good one from a bad one, what are the tasks performed, who does which tasks, and what are the gaps against all of that. Then you analyze what are the enabling knowledge and skills. And then my fourth type of analysis is to go assess existing content to see what can be reused, you know, because the shareholders pay for that stuff. Do we have to reinvent every wheel or can we reuse some of this as is or after modification or what? And most of the content that I have assessed in 40 years of doing this is topic oriented, just like the educational institution that didn't know what job you were going to have when you got out, didn't know what tasks you were going to perform to produce what outputs, what Gilbert called worthy outputs, people have adopted an education model where we're, it's like we're going to give you all these reasonable sounding topics. They all have face validity and they may even have some performance validity, but no one goes that last mile to here's how you apply that in the workflow. Yeah. 
And I've been amazed about that. I remember back in the early 80s looking at people's task analysis. <laughs> and they would be random lists of tasks, it seemed. There was no rhyme or reason to what order they were in. You know, they could have been alphabetically organized. Sure. I can imagine a client looking at that, nodding their head up and down, going, yeah, 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 that's, yeah, people do those tasks and signing off on it and then getting something back that didn't actually address how those tasks manifested themselves in producing outputs of value. Yeah. That were valuable to the downstream customer who was going to use an output as an input and all of that. And the question is why? So my key mentor, I've had many, many mentors, but Gary Rumler wrote a thing in 1969, a forward to a book, and he titled it, We Can't Get There From Here. (laughs) And it was all about that instructional technologists way back then needed to take on a performance technology approach. And too often we generate instructional content that isn't going to improve performance. It sounds reasonable, it looks reasonable, but it actually doesn't get you, the performer, the learner, to practice authentic kinds of tasks, producing authentic kinds of outputs, dealing with the variations in, in the work performance and processes in the context. We just miss the boat entirely. We come up with reasonable sounding things that our clients would have to nod their heads in agreement that, yeah, that's part of it, yes. Yeah. But we don't go that last mile to authentic performance. And I don't know why that persists. It's an interesting guy because I was talking with a colleague the other day, and I think he put it perfectly. And, and it sounds like it's semantics, but I think it's pretty profound, is that what you're describing is efforts in the support of performance, not in the enablement of performance. And those are two really very different things, right? I mean, in, by, in what he meant by in support of is that it kind of surrounds it. It's like you said, they they nod and smile. Like, yeah, that's kind of what we do here. And yeah, I see people doing that stuff. And But that's knowledge to inform, not tasks to enable. And that's where I see your work. And I think what you're describing is that extra mile part. And I know I was shy of it for 20 years of my career. And I do what I, I find a lot of my colleagues do is that I stopped at the door and said, well, how do I cross that threshold? You know, I don't know what they do. I don't do, I don't go back with them to the job. So I can only take them so far. I've learned that that's a, a very short-sighted view of what our analysis should demand it's allowed to do and do in, in what we build with our outcomes. Yes, we have faulty analysis practices if we're even allowed to do analysis I remember back in 1981 when I was at Motorola and I was listening to a group of manufacturing managers, 30 of them in the room, describing a project they wanted me to undertake. And I listened to them. I did my best active listening. And I said, so the first things we're going to do in analysis and my client, the head guy, stopped me. and He said, stop. We hate when you guys come back 90 days later and tell us what we told you on day one. Right. And that was an indictment of our processes and our practices for conducting analysis, they were seen as little to no value add when all was done. And they took forever. So it was analysis paralysis and they got nothing for it. And you know, what's funny is when when we go in to do what we call workflow analysis, you know, similar to the great work you described that you've always done, Guy, is that we often pull the SMEs in, right? SMEs that have been used 
agnosium and these other practices you described earlier, they come in fairly complacent. They come in you know, already bored. Uh, some of them come in already annoyed that they've got to give us a half day or more of their time. The irony is when you start talking about what they do and ask them questions about their performance and get at all the things you described around gap analysis and all these other things, they'll stay for days. And they're thrilled to hear that someone in L&D wants to know what they actually do, how they could do it better, and the, and the challenges they face in doing it. And at the end of that work, unlike my past efforts before I discovered this thing, very often the SME will come up after and be like, okay, look, what are you going to do now? When am I going to see what this is? How do I get involved in the next step of this? I never exactly. get any of that. I never get any of that when I came in to do, uh, and I'm doing air quoting here, task analysis for the first 20 years of my career. It's it's so true. I've had I told clients in the past that now when I form an analysis team, they're going to be so energized that they're going to want to be part of the design team. Right. And my client would deny that. And I would say, <laughs> well, you know, borrowing a line from Saturday Night Live, hear me now, believe me later. Um, because people are interested, their egos demand of it of them, I guess, for them to be interested in what you've taken from them. And I would tease them a little bit saying, well, I hope we don't screw it up in design now. And they go, well, I'm going to be there. Well, we only want to take a subset of you guys to do that. Yep. We can get them engaged when we are looking at the authentic performance requirements, when we want to understand how do you do that? What are the tasks that lead to the outputs? What are the measures for the task? What are the measures for the output? What are the barriers in performance? And what are your strategies and tactics to avoid those barriers in the first place? And what do you do in the second place if they were unavoidable? And people have a wealth of information to share with us. Of course, one of the big issues that we face is that what the research shows us, and I've gotten this from uh, Dr. Richard E. Clark, most of our knowledge, most anybody's knowledge, the experts that we work with or ourselves, is mostly non-conscious. And what his yep. research shows us is that an expert can tell you 30% of what a novice would need. Wow. The good news is, is that each person has a different 30%. So when you work with, a, with different people, you'll get up to what he says is about 85%. You can't extract it because it's non-conscious. It's like us driving the car and all of a sudden we're home and we don't remember what we did. Did we break? <laughs> did we stop at the stoplight? Did we run it? We don't remember because we're on autopilot and experts are as well too. They can't, they don't have everything in, in their ability to recall every last nuanced step. And so, you know, when we do interviews and observations and review documents and all that, we can walk away with a certain understanding, but it's the, in the behavioral tasks are easiest for us to see. Oh, you did mm-hmm. that, you did this, and then you did that. But what were you thinking? What were the cognitive behaviors? And that's what's hard to extract. A big lesson from Bob Mager was to test everything, test it, test it, it because the more you test things, the more you're going to uncover some of what's missing. Because if if we started our journey into developing good instruction or a learning experience, um, we, we need to. Uh, keep in mind that it, we, while we may be accurate with what we've captured, we're most likely incomplete. Yep. And so the goal throughout the whole process from, from the beginning to the end of that effort is to make things more and more complete. And so what are the strategies and tactics that we in the business creating this content, 
how are we making it more and more complete? How are we uncovering the mm. things that are missing? And that's the tricky and hard part. I mean, that's why we just can't generate some content overnight and it'll be good enough to go and it might make us some client or stakeholder happy, but it's certainly not going to help the learner who's a performer actually perform better in the job. Well, you know, in this iterative design, we hear about agile all the time now and stuff. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, again, there's so many mind shift changes here that I think we have to hear in your story as an L&D community. And that is this desire to drive towards a deliverable. And that's the ends to the means to the ends. But in the reality, what you're saying is, and what I've learned in workflow design is that it's only the beginning of the journey. It's the first stake at that. And to your point, it's a combination of multiple conversations with both SMEs, the experts you talked about, the 30%, I love that, but also what we call BMEs or business matter experts, those that are not quite there yet, and frankly, are those who we ultimately have to serve, who bring to the table the reality of context and what the, the novice is up against. But it's the beginning of an iterative journey in, in improving. That's what I love about embedding things in the workflow and, and working with them through performance support, which we'll hopefully get to in a minute, because it, the nature of that tool is that it's not a waterfall design approach. It's not a deliverable of a class on June 9th. It's the beginning of embedding something that's helpful with what we know, but we're going to absolutely iteratively improve that tool through analysis and watching behavior and judging and measuring outcomes and, and, and using things that are discovered and learned in the workflow from a resource perspective and otherwise, and ultimately mature this thing into a remarkable tool. Yes, it's more than just the one event. I mean, we might have a training session or learning experience session. I don't know what to call these things anymore. But um, <laughs> where we, we start somebody uh, up the learning curve. And of course, they're going to learn informally. And there's other things that we can give them to help them make it more effective, more efficient. But a lot of we're not going to take somebody from not knowing anything about anything to having perfect mastery of something yeah. in a short time frame. We're not going to. So it's, you know, what do we do pre-event, event, post-event kinds of things, the space learning kinds of things? What kinds of resources do we give people? Because too often we expect people to memorize everything that we put into some sort of a class, whether it's face-to-face -face or virtual, and people just cannot. Yep. And a lesson I got from uh, Neil Rackham back in 1981 when he was doing stuff at Motorola with us was that we need to do a lot less in our training sessions. We need to cover <laughs> less. And we need to spend more and more time on the practice and feedback element of that because we shovel and feed people with the fire hose is the, is the phrase, but, but, and they can't retain it all. And mm. we expect too much. So we're not spreading it out. We're not enabling their performance. One of my things is that our default, when I first started with the concept of guidance, but we were using Joe Harless's term job aids, was that our default was to do a job aid, a standalone job aid. Yep. But our clients always resisted that. They hated yep. that notion. So we quit having the argument. We just embedded job aids in training and got <laughs> an audience that way. And, you know, share this with your neighbors when you get back to the job site. So the first default, if it's worthy of addressing, I mean, I think one issue is that our profession, the L&D profession, too often goes after low stakes performance, medium stakes performance, and doesn't reserve their efforts for high stakes performance. Yeah. We should leave more to informal learning and then find ways to enable that in the workplace but if it's worthy of addressing, would a standalone job aid do, would you know, standalone performance support do, or do you need to embed it in training 
as some interim kind of a thing. Because if you think about the airline pilot checking the underbelly of the aircraft, they're using a checklist. But you know they've been trained on how to use that checklist and exactly what to look for. The checklist is there to make sure that they don't forget something. Yeah. And then we should reserve training when we need people to truly memorize something because the workplace, the workflow context demands that they have that on immediate recall. There's no chance, no time for them to look something up. They've got to Brilliant. just know it. Or it's a key critical skill like overcoming objections in a sales call. And there's many other examples where you just need to know it and have that at the ready. And there's no time for referencing. But again, we can't expect people to memorize every last thing, especially initially. And we need to give them that support, performance support in the workflow. We need to find ways to make it available to them for use in the workflow and not expect that they're going to memorize something because we, you know, we, we addressed this in your orientation class, you know, six months ago. And, yeah. You know, depending on how often you use what you've learned, if you're doing it every day, all day long, you're going to memorize it. But if it's something that happens every quarter or something like that, you're going to need to reference something because you can't remember what they taught you three, six months ago. You just can't. You know, it's brilliant, Guy. And, and as I sit here listening to you, it really is. And I think back on my journey. I think back on those I talk to every day because I work with L&D professionals, which I want to get to in a moment as well, who are struggling to make this shift. And it is really a fundamental reorientation of what we're going after out of the shoot, those we're talking to and, and what we're asking them, what our expectations of what we're going to build first. And then after that, this whole idea about letting go of the importance of an event or memorization or mastery being so upfront and so critical and having to happen quickly. These are changing some real fundamental tenets in how the L&D industry has been schooled and also the way it's, it's carried itself for so long. So let me, let, me, let me get to this. We get a lot of L&D leaders who listen to this. And so they're looking at their team and they're thinking of what they build every day. They're thinking of the conversations they have every day. And I'm sure many of them are reminiscent of what, frankly, we're both describing or you're beautifully describing as, if I may, what we're kind of doing wrong. How do you help that leader change that journey? How do you, what, what would recommendations guy would you give them in the classic ID team, trainer team, QA team that they've set up and built for years got their processes and checklists, their waterfall, alpha, beta, whatever, you know, we're, we're turning ocean liners around here. What would you recommend they do as leaders with their teams? Well, I, I think the leaders are in between the proverbial rock and a hard place. Hmm. Um, they've got to shift the processes and practices of their teams to have a performance orientation and get away from what I rail on the focus on tasks, not on topics. And of course, yep. I ask the outputs and all the stakeholder requirements and all that and get away from just this topic orientation that I see too often. But the other thing is their clients and stakeholders have an education model because we all come out of the education system. And so we all are pretty darn sure we know exactly how that works. Yep. You, know, you know, how long does it take to actually waltz up to the front of the room and give a lecture on something if you're, if you're knowledgeable about that? So how hard can that be? Well, performance-based instruction, performance-based workflow learning is trickier. 
Because of this non-conscious nature of knowledge, it's hard to extract from the people that you would want to model, you know, mm. want everybody to emulate the master performers is what I call them, or best performers, or what Gilbert called exemplars. So getting from them what a novice needs, and then organizing that appropriately and not doing the fire hose kind of a treatment, and then the supports that people need after the formal learning, what can we give people to help them? You know, it all depends on the performance and the performance context and what kind of variation there is in the performance requirements in the context because it could change. So it's either, you know, very standard and very stable or it's all over the place, but we can kind of generalize it, teach people things and we can give them supports for things. But the leaders have got to work with their customers and help educate them in terms of what this means. And I always think back to what I learned from Bill Wiggenhorn, who was my boss at Motorola. He was asked to come in and start up a corporate training organization that hadn't been there for 10 years. And it was M-Tech, Motorola's training and education center. And he brought in people like Rumler and uh, Rackham and uh, Svensson and to help oriented staff to this new way. And we worked with Rumler to create an instructional design process that was performance oriented and all of that stuff. But the other thing that Bill put in place was a governance and advisory system. Mm. And so the top two leaders of all five business sectors sat Mm. on a board of governors and Mm. they handed out the money. So we didn't have a budget every year that was just 10% more than the last budget or 10% less. And they had this advisory group. So they had a group in in sales and marketing. They had a group in engineering. They had a group in manufacturing materials and purchasing, which is the group I supported. And they had a group for management. And the business managers, the middle managers, decided what their needs were across the five business sectors. And they went and made requests of the governance board to fund my organization, the organization Mm. I worked in. And so we were only working on what Rundler called the critical business issues, the CBIs. And it's hard to cut the funding for a critical business issue. You, the leaders, saw that we have people got to change this process or this practice, and we need to develop them to do so. And so we were working at their behest on everything. Now, business priorities can change. And so we, you know, have a project on occasion that would get stopped cold in the middle of it and shift the resources, us, to work on other things that were now higher priority. But we were in minimally a quarterly contact with the leaders of the business who would take a look at our results. They held us accountable. They looked at the results that they were getting in the business metrics out there that they lived with, and they could see either we were making changes or not. So in the sales world, they could see are we doing better with sales revenue? What about our margins from those sales, et cetera, et cetera. And Mm -hmm. so in manufacturing, you can look at productivity and yield and scrap rates and all these kinds of things. And you're either improving those things or you're not. They don't care how many people sat for how long in (laughs) in training courses. They don't care about any of that stuff. They didn't care about your activity measures. They only looked at the results measures. And of course, if those results measures were off, then we would look at the activities to figure out what the heck was going on or wrong or whatever. But so I think leaders need to work on their customers and help orient them to what a performance orientation to instruction or learning experience or whatever you want to call it, what that will do for the business for them and helping them to run a more effective and efficient business. Hmm. The staff has to be prepared for that. So 
You need better analysis methodologies that don't feel like analysis paralysis. Yeah. You need better approaches to design so that you're doing more blended learning where you're looking at what do people need after the initial learning? What are the needs for space learning or reinforcements, whatever you want to call that? And what kinds of things where we can avoid training instruction mm. in the first place by giving people performance support? Love that. And if we can get them to that, you know, in a pharma and manufacturing world, they're following standard operating procedures, SOPs, and that's guiding their work. Now, they're all trained on what to do and how to use the machines and all that stuff. But the job aid, the performance support of an SOP guides the performance so people don't accidentally, inadvertently forget some critical step. And they have to sign off on those kinds of things. So that's taking it to an extreme when there's life and death at stake because people take prescription drugs that, you know, will kill them. You got to worry about those kinds of things. So so, and all of this makes sense if you're really working on the high stakes performance. Hmm. If you're working on topics or things with mass appeal and you, you can't get too specific because then you make it inappropriate for some audiences. So you keep it very general. I would suggest that we leave that to informal learning or we just give information out and don't call it instruction or whatever the the right Mm. term is that's being used. But it's not easy for leaders um, because they've got to work at both ends of that. They've got to change the expectations of their customers and they've got to change the practices of their people. Wow. We got to get in the deep end. All you described, Guy, was getting in there with the business, understanding the KPIs. I don't know if some industry knows what that acronym is, candidly. Mm-hmm. I love the shift from topic to task and doing the hard work of committing to the business, understanding the business, suffering when the business suffers. <laughs> you know, and, and I love that you, that you keep coming back to let's build as little classroom stuff as we possibly can as a mindset, as opposed to it being the tip of the sword. So let me ask you this to kind of wrap up here, my friend. In your opinion, is this a must-do or if you want to do? And we're, we're in a really difficult time and are for the foreseeable future. Classrooms aren't going to fill up soon. This has exposed the non-classroom stuff for being, candidly, in some cases, weaker than it was when it was surrounded by these other things. The L&D leaders and L&D teams are in a really challenging moment and being asked very abrupt, and I love the word that someone used yesterday, raw questions about how they can help the business frankly, survive. So is this a crossroads for L&D? Is this, is this a must-do or, you know, now Bob, my department's, you know, I'm, I'm anxious, I'm up against a wall, that sounds scary, uh, you know, I'll do it if I want to. I think it's an imperative, but this has been an imperative for decades now. Yes. It's like if we're at the crossroads, we're on a major thoroughfare that has a stoplight every quarter of a mile, and we just keep on hitting each crossroad. But What's at stake here is if you're not serving the critical needs of the business and doing well at serving them, you're going to be subject to the upsizing and downsizing phenomena that we've seen in L&D. So it's the first group cut, you know, people have said for decades now, and it's somewhat true. Entire organizations are let off, but if they have been working on really critical parts of the business and enabling that business to succeed, and were seen as valuable partners in all of that, they would look elsewhere before they made all the headcount reduction efforts. Mm. Um, so I think it's an imperative, one, to serve the business and to make sure that as we take the shareholder equity 
and convert their cash into content that it has a worthy return on the other end of it. And if we don't work on the high stakes performance, if we don't do a darn good job of impacting performance, either sustaining it because there's lots of turnover, performance degradates, or we need to actually improve it. And when we're working on performance, it's easier to measure from a business standpoint. It's easier to count the improvements, how many widgets are being produced, what's the yield on them, what's the cost of We get more in the line and we can prove our worth to them. But when we address topics or performance of mass appeal and no one can figure out, you know, what's the real impact of that investment? What did we get for it? If we don't start thinking like business people, you know, we got to use the language of our customers. We need to mm. figure out how do they measure these things? They don't do capital expenditures without doing an analysis of that. If we want to do people development, that's just like a capital improvement effort. Yep. We need to get in sync with the business and show our value. And not everything is dollarizable, but if we could dollarize it, we'd be better off. And they'd see the value for the investments that they have in learning and development. We need to shift away from the high price training kind of event to performance support kinds of things and embed that in the workflow if we can, in the machinery, in the software, et cetera, or give people little little job aids to carry around in their wallets. That's what we used to do before, you know, digital technology <laughs> enabled all this. We carried little thing cards in our wallets that told us what the 12 steps were. So we wouldn't we could prepare before the sales call. We've got to find ways to take advantage of the affordances of technology and really support performance. That's that's brilliant. My friend, you know, I, I've heard you say numerous times that you're not a researcher, that you, but you, my friend, you are as good as it comes. I heard you reference as being a rock star the other day in LinkedIn, and I couldn't uh, agree more. Your dedication to this business, the way you've studied it, your humility around doing the right thing has just always been remarkable for me. Great session. Can't thank you enough for being here and for all that you've done for our business, what you've done for this podcast, what you continue to do. Just great to know you and appreciate you being with us. Thank you. I owe it all to my mentors, like many of us do. We do. Thanks, my friend. Be well. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of the Five Moments of Need Performance Matters series. We look forward to future conversations around how to best put the five moments of need into practice. We welcome your feedback and can be reached on Twitter using my Twitter handle at BMOSH as well as our Five Moments of Need website, which is www.the5momentsofneed.com. We hope you're finding these helpful and will subscribe to future episodes. Have a great day, friends.